Well, church, this is a special day for us as we welcome Jim and Corey Britt on their first Sunday at Palm Vista Community Church. Jim comes as a gift from God. As Ephesians 4, 8 to 11 states, the pastors are Christ's gifts to the church, equipping us, helping us to do the work of ministry that God has called us to do. And, and what a gift Jim and Corey are to us as a church. Jim has served the Lord faithfully for over 25 years as a pastor. He has planted four churches and he's helped adopt in two other churches into our denomination of churches. Jim served in our pastor's college for one year, preparing men for the ministry. He's been closely involved in our mission to the Caribbean, going to Cuba and the Dominican Republic for well over eight years. In fact, he just came back from the Dominican Republic a few weeks ago, where he did a leadership conference for several churches in Santo Domingo. Jim is a seasoned pastor who excels at connecting people to God to one another, and to neighbor through Jesus Christ. Jim and Corey have three adult children, all of whom serve the Lord in our Greenville church. Jessica, the oldest, Katie, who is married to Ryan, and Jimmy, who will become married this December. So church, I think it would be very, very appropriate for us to greet them and to thank the Lord for them right now. If you're, one, if you're a guest, you're wondering where Jim is. He's right here in front. So uh, please feel free to come down and say hi to him. Uh, he really wants to get to meet all of you. And we're delighted that he's with us. And I'm happy to announce to you that he will be preaching very, very soon from the book of Jonah. And he's a very good preacher. So what a gift he is. What a gift Corey is to us as a church. This is God's favor on us, guys. This means God loves us very, very much when he brings this kind of gift to us. It's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful gift. Amen. Now, let's turn to our sermon entitled, Prophet Overboard. We've all been on cruises. Hopefully none of you have never gotten to the, too close to the rail, especially after maybe visiting uh, the bar. Because if you do and you go over, they scream, man overboard! Well, this morning, we, we have a prophet that is overboard. Please turn to Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 to 16. Let's pick up this narrative of this runaway prophet on a ship in the Mediterranean Sea. The book of Jonah is located after Obadiah, and before Micah. I knew that would help you, so that's why I said that. (laughs) Take a moment to locate the book. Use your table of contents if you would like, or like many of you have, a smartphone. That's the beauty of smartphones and Bibles on the smartphones. It's right there. But do find Jonah. It's important that we read it together, that you can put your finger on the words, and most importantly, that God would, by his finger, put those words in your heart. So Jonah chapter 1 
verses 4 to 16. Let's read God's word together. Are you there? Jonah 1, 4 to 16. Here we go. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise! Call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. And said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let us pray. Lord God, this is an amazing narrative. Amazing narrative. Would you take this narrative from the pages of Holy Scripture, this this word that you have brought to us over the centuries, and would you now put it in our hearts, write it on our hearts. Lord, let let us see Jesus. Let us see your redemption. Let us see your plan. Let us see your will. Lord, fill us as a church. Build us as a church through your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jonah fled God's presence, sailing as fast as he could away from God's call to preach to the Assyrians. You'll see here on the map, Assyria is in modern-day Iraq. The capital is Nineveh, almost in the center, upper center there. And instead of going east, Jonah is on a ship, as Corey informed us last week, heading west on the Mediterranean. 
Some say he was trying to get to Spain on the furthest western tip of the Mediterranean, the uttermost parts of the sea at that time. The sailors, ignorant of this unfolding drama and of the God who was driving it, nonetheless come, came face to face with this God from whom Jonah was fleeing. Here's the question that drives the text. Here it is. Who is this God who causes the seas to rage and can calm the raging seas? Who is this God? That's the question that comes out of this text for our hearts this morning. It was the question in their hearts back in 7 or 800 B.C. It's the question of everybody who's read it since after it was written. Who is this God? This God who causes the seas to rage and can calm the raging seas. As we read this narrative, we do so as men and women facing raging seas of our own. Struggles with indwelling sin. Situations beyond our control like unexpected health issues. Financial pressures. Deadlines at work, relationships at home with spouse, siblings, and children, relationships outside the home with fellow believers, friends, co-workers, bosses, and neighbor. In this text, God uses the raging seas to draw our attention to him. For, friends, our issues begin and end with God, not your boss. Not with that financial situation. They begin and end with God. So who is he? Who is this God who causes the seas to rage and can calm the raging seas? Point one. From the text, we find out he is the almighty God hurling wind and sea. Look at verse four. God hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty storm on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. The storms we face often threaten our ship, our life. And it feels like as if it's going to break up. And the sailors reacted as anyone would. They were afraid. Verse 5, they cry out to their God. As Daniel Timmer says in his commentary, on Jonah entitled, A Gracious and Compassionate God. The sailors are polytheistic, as was normal in the ancient Near East. But they do not know Yahweh. Thus, when their lives were threatened by the storm, their actions reveal their hope. The hope that their gods are capable of doing something to save them from a watery grave. And they cry out to them in verse 5. So many around us, and maybe some of you this morning, find yourselves crying out like these polytheistic sailors to whatever or whomever you think can help you in the midst of your raging seas. You look to the power that you think can help you, whether it's money, friends, you name it. Anything that you put in the place of God here. But like the sailors in our narrative, those God's cannot help you. The sailors now 
fearing for their lives, begin hurling the cargo overboard in order to lighten the ship. Verse 5. This was a common practice in the first century among sailors. The ship had to be lightened so it could ride out the storm and not be swamped. In survival mode, they ignored the huge financial loss of tossing everything overboard that they were carrying. Do you ever find yourself in survival mode? Frantically hurling everything overboard, all the precious cargo in your lives, no matter what the loss, just to ride out the storm. It was quite a scene in verses 4 and 5a. God is hurling the great wind upon the raging seas, and the sailors are hurling the cargo back into the seas. God and the sailors hurling things at each other. Who do you think wins? Who wins in your life? Been hurling things at God lately? Has he been hurling things at you? He's trying to get your attention. Meanwhile, in the drama, look at 5b. The only one on board who knew the God of the seas, who knew the God who caused the seas to rage, and the only one who could calm them was asleep. Below deck. See that in verse 5b? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. What a contrast between the frantic action. Can you relate to these sailors? Throwing stuff overboard. I'm going to die. And Jonah, he's snoring fast asleep. Ladies, yeah, it's like when your husband is fast asleep and they're just snoring, you know, on their back, mouth open, you know, just like, he's just, he's out. That is quite a contrast in your mind, isn't it? Someone snoring fast asleep, people frantically trying to do whatever in survival mode. But can I invite you to consider a greater contrast? And it's the contrast that God wants us to see in this text. And that contrast is between this prophet, Jonah, in this text... And another prophet who would come some eight, seven, eight hundred years later, who also slept during a storm. That prophet is Jesus of Nazareth. Please note the contrast between Jonah, the prophet asleep below the deck in the midst of the storm, and Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, asleep in the back of the boat in the midst of the storm in Mark 4, 37 to 41. It's on the screen here. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, that's in the back, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea 
obey him. Jonah was asleep because he rejected the will of God, church, and he had no control over what was happening. Jesus was asleep because he embraced the will of God and had full control over what was happening. Jesus did not hesitate in this text to first rebuke the wind, resulting in a calming influence over the raging sea, and then rebuke the disciples for their unbelief. See, the temptation for some of us in the midst of the raging seas, for some of us, particularly if you have a little Latin blood, is to get frantic and crazy and start yelling. You just feel better, you know? Loud noises, waving your arms, taking whatever measures possible. You think, you know, hey, we're going to solve this thing. But you know others of you? You know what your temptation is in the raging sea? To escape. Just to sleep it off. Go down below and hope that I'm just going to go to sleep and it'll all be gone when I wake up. You're escaping. Like Jonah, you're asleep below decks, hoping it would all go away. And our escapism endangers those around us. Like Jonah's escapism endangered that whole crew. Look at verse 6. Jonah did nothing in the face of the captain's urgent plea for him to call on his God to save them. Do you see that? The captain is trying to lead his ship. He runs downstairs. Maybe he's running downstairs to get a crew to start. All right, get the stuff that's down in the hold. All right, I'm coming down here. He goes, hey, what's this guy doing to sleep here? You know, Jonah might have even been having a dream. I finally got away from God's call. When suddenly his dream is is interrupted with the captain saying, call on your God, call on your God, we're all dying, call on your God. I can just imagine someone thinking, are you, are you crazy? Is this for real? And he's thinking, look, I, I can't call on him, I'm running from him. But see, Jonah could not flee from the presence of the Almighty God. And so in verse 7, the sailors suspected Okay, because back then they suspected if this is happening, they were a bit superstitious. There was this idea of justice and mercy. It's got a fancy word. It's called theodicy. We're going to get into it more as the book moves along. It's one of the themes of Jonah. And they kind of suspected that, you know what, since this is happening, and listen, this was an unusual storm. These were seasoned sailors, and they were freaking out. I mean, these guys were paid to not freak out and not throw the cargo overboard. That's why they were sailors. They could take a lot. They didn't get seasick. But they were freaking out. So they said, this is unusual. So they suspect what? Somebody on board did something wrong. (laughs) Someone's in big trouble. There's some big sin here. So what do they do? Well, they do what people in the ancient world did back then. They cast lots. Look at verse 7. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, it's interesting Since Jonah was committed to his escapism, up to this point, he's remaining mute. He knows he's the reason for the storm. Isn't that sad? When you you go escape, you know your escapism is messing with everybody around you. But you just, we just don't want to say anything, do we? We just think if we are quiet and just go to sleep, I'm going to go take a nap. Or my way of taking a nap is just watch as much sports as I can before I just like fall over from, you know, eye exhaustion. 
or do whatever you do to escape. But people around us are saying, what's up? And God won't let us escape. (laughs) So they resort to the casting of lots to find out who is at fault here. And Jonah won the lottery. (laughs) But this was not the kind of lottery you would want to win. See, in biblical times... (laughs) In biblical times, your number came up. Yay! No! (laughs) It's your fault. In biblical times, casting lots pointed to God's sovereignty in matters. We read that, for example, in Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So when the lot fell on Jonah, they put him on trial. you got to imagine... The winds are howling. The waves are breaking. They're throwing money. It's like taking cash money out of your pocket, just throwing it overboard. They're throwing all their goods, everything. They they are desperate. And all of a sudden, they realize, you get the short straw. You're the reason this is happening. So look at verse 8. They begin to cross-examine him. Jonah cannot run from God's presence. Listen, look, at what they, look at what they ask him as the raging storm threatens their very existence and they're looking at the guy they suspect is responsible for it. On whose account has this evil come upon us? Verse 8. What is your occupation? Where are you from? What is your country? Who are your people? I'm sure Jonah's like, wait, wait, wait. Just one question at a time, please. But they're freaking out. They want answers right now. They're shouting these questions over the storm. And Jonah's response in verse 9 forms the centerpiece of this text. It forms the main point God wants to make to us, church. Look what it says, Jonah 1.9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. So Jonah describes himself as a Hebrew. Suddenly he's very different from these pagan soldiers. And they would have known enough to know that Hebrews worship the God of heaven and earth. And then he says that he fears God. Well, he supposedly feared God because he uses the covenantal name for God, the Lord. That's that name, Yahweh. He declares him to be the maker of heaven and earth to include the very sea that is raging against them. I mean, Jonah identifies Yahweh. He's preaching right now. The rebellious prophet is unwillingly preaching about God. Not because he chose to, but because he lost. He won the lottery, and then he got grilled by a bunch of pagan sailors. How sad sometimes, right, guys? We're fleeing God. (laughs) People that are desperate in storms. They're going, could you tell us a little bit about this God that you supposedly serve? (laughs) I know you're trying to run from them. You were asleep there. But can you wake up for a second at your job and your neighborhood? And we're just telling them what we have know and learn all along. We're not really living it at the time, but we just tell them he's the God of heaven and earth, the maker of all creation. He's the one that's over this sea that's raging right now in your life. See, this God whom Jonah declared was above all other gods, he was above all their gods. He alone was the ultimate source of power and authority. That's our God, church. People in this neighborhood who are desperate in survival mode with the storms ranging, calling out to their gods who are no gods. We know the God who is over all. 
And after declaring this God, he most likely went on to explain to them exactly what had been happening. He preached Corey's message from last week. How he'd been called to Nineveh. How he was a Hebrew and he hated the Assyrians and he was running from God. See, the wonder is that that Jonah could recite this creedal statement. He was invoking the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, while attempting to flee the very God whose sovereignty he and it was celebrating. We do the same, though, don't we? I mean, this describes us. We claim to fear God while attempting to flee his presence through our unbelief and disobedience. But God in his kindness, God in his kindness hurls the wind and brings the raging seas so that we might come face to face with him. It's not the raging seas that are important. It's God. So Jonah and the sailors find themselves face to face with the God who controlled all to include the sea that was about to drown them. And this God had begun to punish sin. They realized their humanity in the face of such divinity. I pray you would as well this morning. They realized that they were in big trouble because here in their midst was someone who was attempting to flee this God. And they really didn't know this God. And they realized our problems here are big. Friends, here's the point. They realized that fleeing from God's presence was not only sinful, but ultimately unsuccessful. And friends, so should we. We can't run from the presence of the Lord. Look at Psalm 137. Excuse me, 139, verses 7 to 10. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, uttermost parts of the sea, Western Mediterranean, on your way to Spain back then, Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In this narrative, Jonah was seeking to run from the presence of the Lord to the uttermost parts of the sea. But even there, God's hand led him and his right hand held him. Friend, there's no running from the presence of the Lord. Dear dear unbelieving friend, you may be here under duress this morning. You may have been fleeing the presence of the Lord, but it is futile. God will find you. Actually, he never lost track of where you are. And at the appropriate time, at the appropriate time, in his sovereign will, he will capture your heart through Jesus Christ. The very storms you are facing may be God telling you to stop fleeing and start facing him. And your great need for a savior, you are in trouble. You are drowning. Here's the good news. We're about to hear it. There is a greater Jonah who will save you. I pray today would be that day. And dear Christian friend, God will lead you and hold you even in the midst of your rebellion right now and your unbelief in whatever area you have. And I've got plenty. When we're in those metaphorical, remotest parts of the sea, when we're giving in to sin secretly, when we're not believing, we're complaining, we're angry, we're confused, we're asleep, we quit, we don't want to do this anymore. Everybody else is doing their work and we're down below sleeping. His his hand, his hand guides us, his right hand holds us. God's holding you right now in Jesus, in Jesus. 
Well, back to the narrative, verse 10. The sailors reacted to Jonah's confession with great fear. In fact, in verse 10, it describes them as being exceedingly afraid as they exclaimed to Jonah, what is this that you've done? In Timur's commentary, he quotes a theologian named Wolf who observes the following. The sailors terrified. When they cry that terrified cry, what have you done, is a cry of terror springing from knowledge, and the text strongly favors seeing this, this knowledge, as based on their new knowledge of Yahweh, as Jonah had just announced him. I mean, they thought they were in trouble on one level before Jonah shared the truth with them. And when Jonah shared the truth with them, they realized, oh my goodness, it's not this storm that's the problem. It's this God we just heard about. And you're running from him? See, in verse 11 now, things are getting worse. Look at it. As the seas grew more and more tempestuous, the sailors asked Jonah what they must do to quiet the storm. You may be asking God the same. God, how can you quiet the storm? And let me tell you, this must have been the mother of all storms. For these seasoned sailors to ask Hebrews, who were not known for their seafaring at all, what they should do. See, I think they had begun to realize that their problem was not primarily the storm, but the God who caused the storm. And the solution would not be a physical one, but a spiritual one. It dawned on them that they would have to deal with Yahweh, the creator of the sea and hurler of the winds. Do you realize that your problem is primarily the storm? Is not primarily the storm of criticism, conflict, or need that you are currently facing. But rather, your problem is with the almighty God who is hurling the storm your way. Now Jonah's response in verse 12 to the question was simple. If they wanted the storm to cease, they would have to hurl him into the sea because he was the reason the tempest had come upon him. This word hurl is used several times here. God hurls the wind and the raging seas. The sailors hurl the cargo overboard. Jonah's saying, you want this to stop? You hurl me into the sea. But the sailors in verse 13, acting now more like a God-fearing Hebrew than Jonah, initially refused. They did all they could to get Jonah back to the land because they're thinking, okay, let's get him back to the land because that's where he fled God's presence. Let's get him back to point A so he stops fleeing God's presence and God can, he'll obey God and go to Nineveh and this storm will cease. So they get and they're starting to row. And what does God do? He increases the level of the storm. They did all they could to get Jonah back to the land. But rowing as hard as they could, they were unable to make any headway against the growing sea. Their efforts were in vain. They could not resist God's sovereign will through their efforts, no matter how hard they tried. And neither can we, friends, resist God's will. No matter how hard we try for point two, who is this God who causes the seas to rage and calms the raging sea? He is the sovereign God doing whatever he pleases. Look at the sailor's prayer in verse 14 where they call out to the Lord, to Yahweh. Let's read it. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Friends, their prayer showed their faith in Yahweh's sovereignty over them and the storm. 
They had started out praying to their so-called gods in verse 5, but now having the knowledge of Yahweh given to them by the rebellious prophet, they pray to him alone. And friends, their prayers, their prayer, they, th- these, this prayer echoes Psalm 115.3 and Psalm 135.6 in recognizing God's sovereignty over them in the storm. Look at the scripture, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 135, 5-7. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth and in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. He who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. They prayed the prayer that Jonah would not pray. And the prayer that we should pray. No, carefully. They did not pray that God would save them from the storm, but that he would forgive them for taking a life without due process. See, they recognized Yahweh as God before he granted them freedom from accountability for Jonah's death and before the storm ended. These transformed men, I believe converted men, there is some discussion amongst theologians, some say yes, some no, Their their change, these were transformed men, their change as evidenced in their prayer comes before they derive any demonstrable benefit from it. It is not driven by what God can do for them or by self-preservation. This is no foxhole conversion. As Timur says in his commentary, they revere Yahweh for who He is, not for what He can give them. Do we revere Yahweh for who He is, not for what He can give us? How do we pray? I was reading Don's blog this last week about CJ's tests, the spot he has. I believe it's in his pancreas. And, And she just wrote this. How do I pray? I pray for the result to be whatever would bring you, Lord, the most glory in our lives. Another quote from Timner. Timmer. Yahweh's deliverance of the sailors was not in the first place saving them from death at sea. That was not their prayer. But from divine condemnation and punishment for manslaughter. They were delivered secondarily from drowning. Friends, Yahweh's deliverance is available to all who trust in Him, for He is the merciful God calming the seas of his righteous wrath. And that's point three. And I just want to deviate for a moment from my notes and tell you this. Didn't have time to develop this, but you can. Look at Isaiah 18. I believe it's verse 19. And in Isaiah 18, 19, Isaiah prophesies about a day when God will save Gentiles. He will bring Gentiles in, in large numbers. I believe he's talking about Egypt. And I believe what we see here in Jonah is a small foretaste of that. We see it in broad technicolor, in the book of Acts, we just studied it. When Paul's preaching to Cornelius, when the Gentiles are brought in in massive droves. And here's another thought for you. In Acts, the Jews often reject Jesus. And in Romans 11, 11, it says, if the Jews' rejection of Christ means our salvation, what will their acceptance mean? Folks, do you realize, you see the picture here, Jonah's very rejection of God 
God sending the wind and waves, the storms into your life to get the attention of the sailors has actually resulted in their salvation. Now, if you argue they weren't saved uh, spiritually, fine, but they certainly were saved from death. So it's a picture of what would come. It's a picture of Jesus, the greater Jonah. But point three, who is this God who causes the seas to rage and can calm the raging seas? Point three, he is the merciful God, calming the seas of his righteous wrath. Friends, the the sailors started out, the narrative, hurling their cargo into the sea, trusting in their own efforts to save them. They ended the narrative here in verse 15, hurling Jonah into the sea, trusting in God's grace to save them. Let's read that, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. Can you imagine? And this is no joke, man. This is not like throwing a guy in the pool on his 40th birthday. Even if they drop you, you know, on the side of the pier like they did Jim on his 40th and broke one of his ribs. Uh, This is, this is, I don't feel sorry for him. This is, he's done it to many others. This is, this is a super serious storm. Think of the worst storm you've ever been in. Imagine on the oceans. Those are terrifying storms. And throwing a guy over in that. You're killing him. He's dead. You'll never see him again. It was intense. It was intense. And the sea, look what happens. And the sea ceased from its raging. Friends, for the sailors to survive, Jonah had to be sacrificed. And this points to the greatest revelation of the text. And that is Jesus, the greater Jonah. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He's the only one who can calm the raging sea of God's wrath. Never mind this sea that was just calmed for these sailors, which was a miracle. But what Jesus does, the sea he calms is a far greater miracle. For it's the raging sea of God's wrath against you and against me. He did this on the cross, where unlike Jonah, he willingly went and fulfilled God's will. To be hurled into the sea of God's wrath for our salvation. Jonah had to be thrown into the sea for the sailors to be saved. Jesus had to go to the cross for us to be saved. Trust in him alone. Look at the quote from Brian Estelle in his fine commentary. What Jonah could not do is done by Jesus Christ. He it is who accepts total condemnation. It is solely because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that the sacrifice of Jonah avails and saves. See, the the sailors end up fearing the Lord in verse 16. I think that this language in verse 16, when it talks about sacrifices and vows, if you look at Psalm 50, again, another theme we can't develop, I think this is talking about the kind of language, the kind of things that God-fearing Hebrews do. I I think this is a picture uh, of God giving a foretaste of saving the Gentiles. By his mercy alone. He's merciful to whom he is merciful. And he has that right. But they certainly were saved physically. So the the sailors end up fearing the Lord in verse 16. Let's read it. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Some uh, commentators say that they they offered the sacrifice once once they got to shore. Because they had thrown everything overboard at this point. So they waited till they got to shore, And they they feared God, and they offered sacrifice with vows. This word fear that is used here has a range of meaning that includes worship. 
If you worship the Lord, you fear the Lord. So you can say, I fear the Lord, I worship the Lord, I revere the Lord. These are all synonymous. They're all synonymous. In fact, this word fear, or a derivative of fear, is repeated four times in the narrative. It's a very important word. The first time was in verse 5, when the sailors were afraid of the seas. It is repeated again in verse 9, where Jonah, not Noah, Jonah, claimed to fear the Lord through fleeing, though fleeing his presence. The third use is in verse 10, when the sailors were exceedingly afraid of the fact that one in their midst was running from the very Lord who was over the sea. And finally, here in verse 16, the sailors feared the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the worship of the Lord. Fearing or revering Yahweh describes a living living relationship of obedience and trust. See, the pagan sailors who feared the sea in verse 5 out of ignorance now fear the Lord Yahweh out of the knowledge gained from the rebellious prophet. And fearing the Lord, they offer him sacrifices and make vows, all language ascribed to believing Israel elsewhere in the Bible. Friends, let us worship God and fear the one who alone can calm the raging seas of his wrath through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In conclusion, God is the hero of this narrative. He saves both pagan sailor and rebellious prophet through Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah, who willingly took the wrath of God for our sakes. Here's the appeal to you, church. Here's the appeal to myself. Jesus, the greater Jonah, has calmed the raging seas of God's wrath through his willing death on the cross, saving us and then sending us, sending us out to preach the gospel to our neighbor. Remember, we're talking about connecting to neighbor, to connect to our neighbor through the name of Jesus Christ. He wants to beautify our feet. What do you mean by that, Al? Look at Romans 10, 11 to 15, concluding scripture. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. I believe that this Jonah passage is pointing to this reality. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, blessing, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved And how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? This is the part here. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Even if you're a runaway prophet, if you're a prophet fleeing from God, listen, God's going to use you. Because you know the God of all creation. That marks you. He's sovereign. He's got his eye on you. You cannot run from his presence. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who run towards God's will, preaching the good news of Jesus, that greater Jonah. Because Jesus, the greater Jonah, the true Israel, obeyed the Father's mission to seek and save the lost, so can we. We can connect neighbor to God through Jesus Christ and lead others to be connecting to neighbor through Jesus Christ. By the grace of our greater Jonah, we're saved by grace alone to the wondrous works that he's prepared for us. Church, let's pray. As I pray, worship team, please come forward. Lord God, I pray that you would give us fresh faith this morning. Lord, I pray that you would bring us face to face with you. You are the greater Jonah. 
Lord, that our eyes tend to go to the raging seas, whatever people are thinking about right now, whatever conflict, whatever uh, disappointment, uh, whatever failure they may be feeling, whatever fear, anger, bitterness, raging storms within, storms without. Lord, may our eyes now be fixed on you. You are the central figure here, not the storm, not the sailors, not Jonah. Jesus, you are the greater Jonah. Would you infuse us? Would you give us, Lord? Would you pour out upon us your spirit and your grace that we would have those beautiful feet? We'd have the grace to go and share the gospel. Even if we're fleeing, just tell them what we know. It's more than they know. You've opened our eyes, even though at times we're not obedient to what you've shown us. But you never reject us. You will use us whether we're fleeing or not. But use us, Lord, to open the eyes of our neighbor, to connect them. Lord, to be connecting with neighbor and to see neighbor connected to you through Jesus Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing a prayer. Awake, awake, O Zion. May may we have those beautiful feet of which Paul spoke in Romans 10, 15 preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, our greater Jonah. Let's sing. Oh, church, what a great, what a great truth God has just ministered to us this morning, hasn't he? <laughs> well, in that truth, let me bless you. Just look this way. It's a benediction. May God, church, beautify your feet to go out preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, the greater Jonah, who alone can calm the raging seas of His righteous wrath. Amen? And amen. God bless you, church. If you're a guest, I'd love to say hi to you right through these doors.